Some of you may know that one of my uh, favorite books to pull out this time of year is the Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook, the holiday edition. And uh, there is a section within that invaluable book that is entitled this, How to Deal with a Bad Gift. So this is your public service announcement for this upcoming holiday season. How to deal with a bad gift. You want to start by not, not lying, not over-praising, however, uh, what it is that you have received. You want to say something along these lines. Oh, just a matter of factly, it's, it's a true statement. Oh, I love sweaters. Right? You haven't said too much about the one in front of you, but I, in general. Uh, thank the giver. Thank them for the thought. Uh, I can't tell you what this means to me. See? You're getting it. Um, you want to also figure out perhaps uh, where they got it, uh, perhaps allowing for the, the uh, eventuality of an exchange. Where on earth did you get such a thing? That, that sort of thing. Uh, and last but not least, you, do, you, may, you may need to resort to regifting. And, and if you do that, you need to be keeping track. Right? You want to keep track, maybe some notes as to who gave you what and who you're giving what. So anyway, that's, you need to keep these things in mind when you get a bad gift. You get a bad gift, and it does, it does on occasion happen. But what do you do? What, if you, what do you do if you get the gift of gifts? The gift beyond all gifts. Uh, the one that you most, most need uh, and most in the deepest recesses of your soul want. And here I'm speaking of Jesus himself. Uh, we're going to be exploring that here just for a few minutes this morning, and the plan is over the coming weeks, a little mini-series for the Advent series here this year uh, called First Things First. What we're going to be doing is looking a little bit at John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and Revelation 1. Do you see a trend? Uh, each one of those first chapters of those books powerfully speaks to who it is uh, that who's coming, whose advent uh, we, we celebrate this time of year. So for this morning, I want to look together at John 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. I really want to look at, in particular, verses 14 through 18. So John chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. Now this is the fourth of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. This is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you've seen, if you've gotten to Acts and then Paul's letters, you've gone just a little bit too far. We are John 1, verses 1 through 18. I want to pay a special, again, especially though, verses 14 through 18. Hear now God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Lord, even as uh, we read here in John 1, uh, that you have come as the light, uh, and the darkness has not overcome the light, uh, that speaks to, reminds us of uh, the darkness that is, is real, and, and really, frankly, is within our own hearts. And we ask that you would dispel that darkness. We ask that you would shine light into the shadows uh, where it needs to be shown, and help us to see, help us to be willing to see willing to hear, and help us hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this time of year, I've alluded to this already with my uh, worst-case survival guide, um, this time of year, you can receive many kinds of gifts, and some, some of them are meaningful, some of them are meaningless. Uh, the malls, the shops, the catalogs, if you just have your eyes open to see this, is, are filled with a lot of fluff, a lot of padding, a lot of gifts that frankly are a little more than just filler. They don't really mean anything, do anything. They're, they're not going to have any significant effect whatsoever on your life at all. Now that said, some gifts can be very meaningful. Some of you may be familiar with the name Chris Hatch. Chris Hatch is one of the missionaries that we support here at this church. He serves with Surge there in London. You, some of you may recall if you were around five years ago, uh, Chris had a friend uh, here in the States uh, who was suffering from kidney disease. And so after much prayer and counsel and tests, Chris gave to his friend one of his kidneys. Uh, and uh, I spoke, actually, not quite spoke, email, correspondent, have been in, staying in touch with Chris through these years. And Chris told me just here recently uh, that his friend Tim is doing very well. Uh, it seems that the transplant has, has took, taken and in fact, he and his wife in the years since have had two little girls. So, you know, some gifts can be very meaningful, very significant in, in extraordinary ways. And I would just say this, though, that as wonderful and extravagant, as generous as Chris's gift was to his friend Tim, you know, the reality is that is but a dim reflection of, and Chris would say this, a dim reflection of and, and fruit of the greater gift, the gift of gifts, Jesus coming, the, the Word of God, the Logos coming in the flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus as the gift of gifts. Or if I can put it this way, if, if Chris's gift to his friend Tim had effect and significance, how much more so the gift of all gifts and it's his significance, at least in terms of understanding what it ought to be, to the degree that I would just say this, to the degree to which we understand that, the degree to which we are embracing that Jesus as the gift of gifts, it can have an absolutely positively transforming effect upon our lives. And frankly, everlasting implications as well. Jesus as the gift of gifts. Jesus, the Word, become flesh and dwelling among us. That's everything. He is the gift of gifts. Oh, that we might live in light of that. Oh, that we might live in light of that. Now, I want to unpack this together just for a few minutes. Three main points. A little bit differently how I'm going about this as far as an outline. 
is concerned, I want to look at it this, this, in this way. Just trying to explain something, if I can possibly do that, which I really can't. But, but take a stab at explaining the incarnation. Just making some clear statements, if nothing else. Uh, then trying to go about, secondly, illustrating it. Getting it. So now moving from the intellect and our minds into the heart and our imaginations. And then moving from that uh, to considering its implications, its significant, and, and, and trying to apply it and think it through. So let's look at this together. Uh, first, explaining the incarnation. I just want to look at one verse really here, and actually just a part of a verse here to start. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Jesus, one with, part of, as the second person of the Trinity, one with God, as He is God, um, one in His divinity becomes one with us in our humanity. Impossible to get our minds around His taking on flesh. And when John says that, he's speaking of this. This. Which is then, you know, um, shorthand for speaking to His vulnerability. And, and in which He is entering into this, this world. Completely vulnerable, just, just as we are. The Word becoming flesh and then dwelling among us. Some of you may have heard this before. Uh, the Greek there actually literally translated is um, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Alluding back to clearly John, he's, it's a meaning to uh, connote something to his, er, his first readers, especially his first Jewish readers. Harkening back to the age of the time period in the Old Testament when God dwelled with His people, traveled with His people in the tabernacle and in the ark and somehow in that magnificent, mysterious sort of way as they wandered through the wilderness in their, in their journeys, which was meant to, of course, point to and prepare the way for the, the ultimate one who would come with and dwell with, travel with us, Jesus Himself and His tabernacling here. So the, verse 14 again, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, hearkening back to that same period of time, in the wandering through the wilderness, as the, the Israelites were able to see the visible manifestation of God's presence, His glory, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by, by day, seeing His glory uh, visible, visibly, I should say, and now John is saying, we too have seen it, but in a different way. We have seen God, but in a new way. But, and yet again, but in a new way, in Jesus. Councils, church councils through the centuries of church history have, have spoken to this, trying to break it down. And, and on occasion, we even recite from some of the old the old creeds, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325, Constantinople in uh, 381, and Chalcedon in 451. Each one of these gatherings of, of, of scholars and theologians and pastors trying to get their minds and hearts around articulating what, what the Gospels and the, the Epistles are saying here. Confessional statements through the years have been developed and, 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 and uh strengthened and, and adhered to. And, and there's one, in fact, I I'll just read from here real quickly. There in your quotes and notes, the first one at the top from the Westminster Confession. And there's a whole chapter devoted to the person of Jesus in this particular paragraph. I mean, just, just hear the freightiness of, of, of what they are trying to convey. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, 
being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of a man, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. This person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. It boggles the mind what we're talking about there, but it's, it's true. And the bare essence of it is, is you've got to under, we have to understand is this. Jesus, as true of him, that was talking about one person with two natures. One person with two natures, fully God and fully human at the same time. Now again, through the centuries, uh, wise individuals have written and, and poured their hearts and minds to, about this, making statements about this. And there's a couple of quotes also following that last one that are worth hearing. B, the uh, venerable Bede, as he, I don't think he called himself that, I don't think his wife called him that either, but, but that's what he was known as, it's a 7th and 8th century prolific writer. This is something that he, he said along these lines, in a wonderful manner he began to be what we are, while continuing to be what he had been, assuming our nature in such a way that he himself would not lose what he had been. Wow, just like, how do you get your mind around this? And, and then the next the quote there, you can see it on your page, Bernard of, of Clairvaux, a leader of the monastic movement um, in the 11th and, well, mostly the 12th century. The word is born a child. It is only right that we should be astounded. Then he goes on, why has the Son of God become man but in order to make all men sons of God? And in all candor, no one has improved upon any of that in the, in the century since. I mean, we're all just basically repeating that. Those kinds of sentiments and asking those, kinds, those same kinds of questions. The mysteries, the wonders of God becoming flesh. Taking on flesh. God becoming man. Well, okay, so that's, that's trying to, taking a stab at explaining it. Let's take a stab at illustrating it now. Okay, so you've got something, okay, intellectually we're trying to grapple with this. Now let's try and get our imaginations around this just, just a, little, a little bit. And, and one would be uh, that of a biography of, of someone Close, and, and this is one that Merrill Tenney, in his commentary on uh, John 1, used. Um, he put it this way, The nature of the invisible and mysterious God is thus interpreted by one who is qualified to do so through a kinship and understanding. In biographical writing, a man can best be interpreted to the public by a sympathetic son who has within him the father's nature, and who speaks the language of a generation with which the father did not have direct contact. So God, through a son who is called God, and who is one with the father, is interpreted to men who have been alienated from him by sin. That's one way, one way of illustrating the incarnation, this idea kind of like a, like a biography, in, in essence, or a biographer, I guess you could put it that way. Here's another one. The, the efforts of a strong man coming in in. in his work being seen. C.S. Lewis in his book Miracles uses this one. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature He has created. But He goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with Him. 
One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. That's another way of illustrating, trying to get our minds around and hearts around something of what we're talking about when we speak of the incarnation. So you have a biography, you have a, a strong man. Here's another, one last one, origin. Um, third century theologian, he speaks of the shrinking of a statue. The, the idea is, if you can imagine a village where there is this huge statue of this honored figure that stretches up to the, the heights of the sky, it is so big that no one can take it in. No one can understand. No one can comprehend. Who is this that's being honored in this way, in this statue? And what Origen said, it, with the incarnation, Jesus coming, God taking on flesh, it's as though it's like a self-miniaturization of that statue. He's saying, I'm going to take this thing you can't comprehend and bring it down to a way you can comprehend and take me in. Just barely. Just barely. Self-miniaturization of God. Origen said that is what God did in His Son. This is God's visiting this planet. The Word becoming flesh. Alright, let's look at trying to apply some of this. What are some of this? So the so what's, the significance. What, where might we go with this? I've got five. Uh, five quick ones. I don't have time to explore these in great detail. Um, but I want to touch on each one as best I, I, I can. Jesus as the gift of gifts. What is the significance of that? What are the implications of that? How ought we to respond to that? What does that mean? Well, the first thing I would say is it speaks to something of our knowledge of God and who He is and what He's like. Again, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Another way to translate that word is, is we have perceived We've perceived His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skipping down to verse 18, and the punctuation is critical here. No one has ever seen God, semicolon. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The, the word that... Uh, is translated, uh, has made him known, is, is related to another word that we have in our English called it's exegesis. And that's the word that's, that's used when you're trying to make a text understood. And, and you're trying to clarify it. You're exegeting it. You're expositing it. You understand? Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus is the exposition of His divine, otherwise hidden nature. Jesus, if you want to know what God is like, look at Him. Now, how is that significant? Because you think in terms of how that's the answer to the greatest question that we could possibly ask. In this time of year, you know, many pollsters do ask that question. What do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? And many, many, a wide variety of answers are given to that, the primary, most significant question we could ever be asking. What is God like? Well, you know what? With the coming of Jesus, God Himself coming, we know. The question is settled. Now we know what God is like. So there's 
the incarnation informs our knowledge of God. It also en enables us to be engaged with life. You understand that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans um, re really saw the physical nature as being worthless, if not even evil. Uh, Eastern religions still today see the, the physical as illusionary. Judaism and Islam says there's no way that the exalted God of the heavens would ever come and take on flesh. That is, that's not going to happen. Christianity stands alone and connects and says, oh yes, he did. And the input, the, the, it, what it means is, is that he is concerned, you see, not just with the spiritual aspects of life, but with all parts of life. He came and took on flesh. He walked among us. He knows what it is to be poor and to be hungry, to be persecuted, to be homeless. He knows what that's like because he himself walked and endured and engaged in that kind of life. So he sympathizes, he empathizes with us and, and with that. And by the way, that also impels us to be interested and concerned for those also going through those kinds of things ourselves, knowing how passionate he is, not just for people's spiritual questions, but for all of life's struggles because he entered into life. And thirdly, the incarnation gives us an assurance in suffering. You see, um, the moralistic religious answer to the question, why are you suffering, is, well, you must be sinning and God is judging you. That's the moralistic religious answer to, why, why are you suffering? Well, you sin, and so therefore God is judging you. That does not help us at all. In fact, like, that just harms, that just hurts. And, and, and the secular, non-religious answer to the question is, oh, well, you see where living that way gets you. There's no God, it doesn't matter how you live. Well, that doesn't help either. Again, Christianity stands alone and, and unique in this, and neither um, condemning us, but nor saying that God is missing. But rather it's saying, no, He's loving and He's involved. But then we ask, well, then why does suffering come? Well, I can't tell you that. I don't know why specifically that is, has or will happen, but I, we can know this. It isn't because He doesn't care. Because He came. He came and suffered for us, alongside of us, to bring suffering one day to an end. The Incarnation speaks to our knowledge of God, our engagement with life, gives us assurance in suffering. It, it frees us to serve. One of my uh, favorite texts to ponder and mull over this time of year is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. This is His condescension and self-humbling. The ultimate condescension and self-humbling His pouring out of Himself for the sake of who are those us who are just completely impoverished. Which then enables us, not just encourages us, but in, and is an example to us, but enables us to condescend and humble ourselves and pour ourselves into the needs of those around us. You know, think, we, we talk a lot about the Christmas spirit. What is the Christmas spirit? 
Jesus having made himself poor that we might be then be rich. And therein, because we are enriched by the King of Kings, we therein can pour ourselves into the lives of those around us. We're free to serve. We don't have to play it safe. We're free to serve. And one last thing, it enables us to love. The incarnation, we grapple with it. Understand what's in play here. It enables us to love. Think in terms of the stalemate, the defensiveness, the walls that are put up between two estranged parties. It's a broken relationship and both sides have their heels dug in and nobody's giving any ground at all. What's going to break that? What's going to break that, that log jam? What's going to, how will intimacy, if I can use that word, be recovered in any, any way? Jesus is coming. That's how. An embrace of that. Not just as He is the, as the example of the one who lets down His walls and takes the first step, which He has. But it also enables us to take the risk with that other party because we really... Don't have, we're not risking anything. We're not losing any, anything. We know we are loved, who we are loved by, whose approval we already have. We're safe and secure with that. So we can then step forward and, and take that, if you will, a risk. We can be vulnerable because of who has been vulnerable for us and with us, the Lord Himself, and poured Himself into our lives. Just trying to, just, you know, with those five things, just trying, just beginning to just tease at what it means to take the incarnation seriously and think through its implications. What are the marks of that? Um, Charles Dickens, I'm reminded here at this point, just wrapping this up, Charles Dickens, uh, his classic A Christmas Carol. I mean, you know the old story, right? There's this uh, mean, old, stingy guy named Ebenezer Scrooge, and he has these, you know, literary. People debate, is it real visions, is it a dream? I don't know, it doesn't matter. He has these appearances of these ghosts that come to him on Christmas Eve, and his powerful transformation takes place. But what if nothing happened? You know, what, I, mean, like, I mean, what if the dreams happened, the visions happened, but he didn't change? As though, you know, what would you say to Ebenezer if somehow you knew what his experience had been, and yet he continued on as though nothing had happened? You say, you don't get it. You're not listening you don't understand the significance of Christmas, the gospel, the incarnation, the coming of the, the promised one. We know it, something did happen. We know that, that, that before he was a, this is Dickens' word, he was a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. He was hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. Something changed with this man. And he became open-hearted, with a joy that could hardly be expressed, deeply desirous of reconciliation with his nephew's family, if you think back to the, to the story, open-hearted, open-handed, gladly giving generously to this local charity, gladly then giving and investing himself financially and relationally with the Cratchits, right? Giving them that great Christmas feast, giving Bob the raise, promising he would be there with them to walk with them through whatever needs that they had. Something had happened to the man. A transformation had taken place because of something that had happened in his life. That story, it keeps being told and retold because it hits a nerve within our hearts, a longing within our hearts. And that's what Advent is about. That's what the coming of Christ is, 
is about. But in this case, the story is real. And we don't need ghostly visitations. We have the accounts here. The historical accounts here of what happened. We have but to read them and to take them to heart. The incarnation, His coming, and all that it means. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this celebration of Advent. Your first coming as we look back. Your second coming as we look forward. Both equally historical, though one has happened and one we wait for. Ah, We ask that You would help us to take in what is completed. Take in what is yet to be, but assured. We ask that You would enrich our celebration these coming weeks as we focus upon these things. Focus upon who it is that has come and why. We ask that You would enrich our love and devotion and service and deepen our repentance and our dependence upon You. And in doing all of that, You would provoke the watching world to wonder and to look to You asking the questions, what is going on? We ask this in... Jesus' name, amen.